with me today, legendary radio personality, Randy Owen. Such a pleasure to have you on, brother. How are you? I'm okay, and it's a pleasure to be on your podcast um, because I've been watching some of the interviews that you've been doing. Dude, you're you're missing, I, I think, a, a, an area where you're, you're actually mining it quite well because your interviews are just fascinating. Oh, I'm glad you feel that way. I have a lot of fun with them. I, yeah. um, I've got lots of questions for you. Sure. So much about everything you've delved into historically and done effectively uh, in terms of building your career, your brand, which I really believe is rooted in passion for the format. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about the state of the game of radio today and the politics and what direction you think that industry is headed in. But um, let's start with the positives. Let's sure. start with the fact that you've been in this business for more than 40 years. And uh, I've always felt that one of the things that really gives you the edge is your your infinite knowledge of the mm. format, of the artists, of the players. Um, where does that come from? Like, how do you tap into that? Um, in research. I mean, and, and because of the fact that I'm also a fan. I mean, I probably wasn't a fan on day one 40 some odd years ago. But I became a fan and I felt that the people I was um, broadcasting to um, deserved um, somebody who knew the artist, knew the music. And so that's how I got into it. And the more I got into it, the more I loved it. And the more I met the artists, uh, the more I loved them, too. And I felt I owed it to the listeners because they were tuning in. Basically, it was a country station that I got my start at. Uh, that they were, uh, they deserve to have somebody on the air who who could relate not only to to their favorite artists but their favorite kind of music and do it in a way that was respectful. And that's it also how that gives started. you the ability to 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 demarcate between an interview and a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I find that when I'm listening to you, it 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 sounds more like a conversation, which which typically to the listener is much more compelling than uh, a copy and paste set. Of oh man! Sequenced questions, you know, back to back that that have been asked in every interview, you know, uh, previously to that point. So, I think that's that's one of your secrets too. It's the ability to have a, to know enough about the artist to engage in a real conversation. That's where the research comes in. Um, and to give you a little anecdote, um, the late Charlie Pride, when I first met him, was probably around October of 1983. And I had to go back into a dressing room and set up along with an announcer from another radio station. And so we're sitting there. And it was kind of like a little press conference. We we're going back and forth. That other announcer had a list of questions and he never deviated from them. And then I'm talking to Charlie. And based on my research about him, I, I found out that uh, he was a bit of a, an astrologist. He, he had a, an affinity for, for astrology. So I said uh, at the beginning of the interview, I want you to, to kind of gauge and see if you can guess my Zodiac sign by the end of the interview. And by the end of the interview, he guessed and he was wrong. <laughs> but the cool part was uh, he said it was a water sign, which is exactly what I was. I was one of the water signs of the Zodiac. So he kind of got off that way. But I could feel he was engaged in that, you know, rather than just a, what the other announcer, unfortunately, was doing, just reading the list from a list of questions. Right. And you must feel even in an intimidating interview in a scenario where you're interviewing an artist that, that you're really looking up to that the ability to crack the code, the ability to make them feel as though they're being heard, the ability to, to do enough, conduct enough research on them that they feel that you've really done your homework going into it. 
I would imagine in those cases, you really get to see that artist lower their guard and speak to you more on a. Yeah, in a way. Um, other yeah, some of them are scheduled today. Yeah, some of some of them have uh, dropped their guard with me. And I think a lot of that is, is that um, I think after a while they learn to trust me and, and trust that um, I know where to take the interview. And I know where to go. And I know where to, where to stop and I know where to draw the line because there are some things you do not want to bring up in an interview. And I'll give you another anecdote. Um, I had Randy Travis on the phone years ago, back in the late 80s, early 90s, back to the time that the, he was in the tabloids and there were rumors that he was gay because, you know, he, he, he wasn't, the word was he wasn't married or anything like that, but he, I mean, he was constantly seen with his manager at the time, who eventually was his wife. So I tried to bring it up in a roundabout way. And I said, and this is where I got into it and, and tried to show a little bit of respect, but I knew that that's what people wanted to talk about. So I asked him, I said, a lot of people don't realize that uh, an artist of your stature has a lot said about them um, in, in the tabloids and things like that that just aren't true. How do you deal with that? And the first thing he said was, and I didn't bring up the word, but he did. He said, oh, you must be talking about that gay article. So he brought it up. He brought up the word first, and that gave me permission to, to delve into it a little bit. I just let him go on and on about it. Uh, from there, and I didn't press him. Um, I was totally satisfied with the answer that he gave me and uh, just let it go from there. But I got what I wanted uh, by by going in a roundabout way and being respectful at the same time. And he said, that's exactly what a lot right. of people wanted. You didn't, you didn't press him. You just let him uh, speak to the experience of <clears throat> of getting paid. And that that's such an interesting one, that specific one. It's like, mm. who cares? It's, I mean, listen, I, I know for some people they're, their uh, uh, sexual identity is is very much uh, a part of their humanity and and, mm-hmm. and their own self identity. But you know, in a situation like that, it's like yeah, it, I totally. It doesn't, know, I, it doesn't change. At least, you know, I don't think it does. Like, it doesn't be more or less. It just doesn't seem to matter. He's got. Uh, still make that yeah. a thing it's like what does it matter yeah. at this point Who yeah cares? I agree. yeah i agree um but the thing was i mean it was in the news and you know that people you know behind the scenes are talking about it and um it, it's a it's a risky it's a risky thing right. to bring up uh, in public um but like i said it was already out there and i just wanted to give him the opportunity to address it and he did so i was very thankful for that do you think there's a uh a component of Nashville still that that embraces some aspects of homophobia, or do you think that those, especially in the forty years you've been in the business, have you seen those walls come down quite a bit and acceptance become more? Yeah, um, um, no, I, 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 of the day? yeah, I, I really don't think it has. I think it's, I think homophobia is still a problem in Nashville, um, and, and it probably will be for a long, long time. Um, I know there are some there are some artists now that are coming out, you know, but I mean those are few and far between. And and I my guess is, uh, and again I'm I, I'm going to go on rumors here. Um, you know I've heard about uh, certain artists and 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 certain people in the business, uh, but I, I think it's becoming a little bit more acceptable. But it still is a long way to go. I mean there are some openly gay artists out there. There are some openly gay. Um, songwriters out there and producers and things like that that are now, I mean, wide open. So that's nice to see. I just, like everybody else, I just wish it was a topic that we didn't have to delve into because like you say now, like who cares? You know, if it's, 
if, if it if it affects their career and if the public is talking about it, then I think, you know, I'm in a position where I can give them the opportunity to to talk about it and, and address it. Right. In a very respectful manner, in a manner where they get to own their response to it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting to me, like, you know, in a business where we're often preaching to people to be authentic, uh, mm -hmm. there are certain um I don't know if you want to call it grandfathered in, but traditional aspects of our business where we'll demand that artists are authentic except for X, Y, Z. And one of those things yeah. seems to be sexual identity, sexual orientation. Because um, I agree and, with and, you. I think that we've come a long way and we're going in the right direction. But it's it's strange that that's still something that we're attached to or that we seem to care about um, well, I, when well, all of us in our – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's kind of overtaken that is politics in the last little while, because, again, you know, your political how you identify yourself politically is also a major issue with people these days. Um, so I think that's probably taken um, a, a lot of the limelight from from homophobia. I mean, it, and it's amazing to me um, how politics is. I mean, it's there. It's barely at the surface, but it never gets talked about. Um, and and how that can affect people. Um, I, I've I've got I've seen um, some social media posts by the wife of a very respected and, and talented and honored songwriter, and it was downright racist. And I immediately deleted her as a friend on Facebook, um, which was sad to see. And um, I have no problems with people talking about their politics and things like that. You know, I mean, you believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe, and I think that's the way it should be. Uh, but when you start ridiculing and demeaning people uh, for what they believe in, then I think we're getting into touchy areas where we shouldn't go. Yeah, it's a tough one. I struggle it with is. it because, because I, I never want to, I never want to banish people from the community mm -hmm. for, for corrupted beliefs because I, I think we're all human. And, mm -hmm. and I think that if, yeah, let, let's just take, let's take racism. This is a tough one to talk about. Let's talk about sure. it. Sure. Um, if someone grows up with a corrupted thought pattern that was maybe entrenched by that into their mind by mm -hmm. family, friends, people they love, people they looked up to, and then they get into the real world and, and they need to adapt those beliefs because at some point they realize they're corrupted or they're not true. Uh, as they are muddling through that process, they may still say something that resonates with the old corrupted belief structure. And so for me, I, I always want to support and encourage people through that because usually what, what a lot of my, my liberal friends say to me is, you know, the way to, the way to cure racism is through education. And I go, okay, well, what does that mean then? Because if, if we're going to educate people, that should mean that we're going to give them some positive reinforcement when they're doing things right. We're going to hold them accountable when they do things wrong. Where do we draw that line? Uh, I don't feel like I'm ever threatened by anyone's uh, – I'm never threatened by anyone's racist beliefs because I don't believe that I'm going to be sucked into their mindset. So right. for me, it's it's kind of interesting and compelling to have conversations with people to to challenge their belief structures in order to plant a seed where they might they might see things differently, and that might take a week, a month, a year, or several years. 
Um, but I don't believe in blocking people. And it, 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 as tempting as it is, yeah. the reason I don't want to believe that is because I don't want an ostracized community of people who all think in a manner that is not serving the greater good of humanity or themselves. And those and if people, if they are ostracized from the same community, they will find an insane community to gel with. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what we've been seeing in the last last several years uh, with politics, particularly down in the States and to a point up here, not as much up here, but no, I totally agree. Um, the only time I would ostracize somebody is when um, their position advocates violence. Right. And I think that's, that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I'll let you do you know, do and say what you want to say, you know, and I'll agree with you or disagree and and have a a conversation about it. I don't want to argue about it, but uh, you know, you you go ahead and believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. But if it becomes something that gets extremely distasteful to the point of of and like I said, uh, advocating violence at one, I won't stand for it. That's that's the point where I will ostracize somebody. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's that fine line that we need to figure, you know, that that's, that's actually quite a thick line, mm-hmm. but I think on the other side of that, there are fine lines sometimes where, you know, oh, sure. um, we saw it, we saw it earlier where maybe people didn't put their black square up on Instagram and it's like, maybe they were just off Instagram that day, you know, like maybe we should <laughs> use that as an excuse to drive people out of the community when, clearly we want to invite more people into it as much as possible. Right. Uh, in, in terms of the community of, of sane um, individuals who are uh, pursuing the best for themselves as individuals and contributing to society as a whole. So yeah, yeah I, I, it's interesting you bring that up. I always struggle with it. It's like, I want to understand how someone could come to the conclusion they do because mm-hmm. if you can understand that and you can get to the causal root of it, maybe you can help them see a pathway to redemption. The yeah. problem I have with, with some of the, the, the cancel culture mindset is it doesn't seem to be about redemption. It seems about calling people out or attacking them or ostracizing them in order to score social points with your friends. And that's yeah. where it feels icky to me and it feels wrong. And it just, it doesn't resonate with me. It's like, if someone's got a problem, unless they are hell bent on advocating violence, I'm going to see if there's a wedge I can drive in between that individual and and the redeeming aspect that they might have that still retains uh, or still is retained within their heart and their corrupted belief structure. I'm going to see if I can drive a wedge into that because there's right. hope in that wedge, right? Exactly. So, Anyway, you always find a way to navigate things very tactfully on Facebook. I'm always impressed with how you're you're humorous and positive and you seem to have a lot of fun, but you definitely lay down the law when somebody's crossed the line. Yeah, and and I think somebody should. Um, And I try to be. I mean, um, yeah, I, I could probably I could probably go off on a tangent and go crazy on some people. Uh, for some things, uh, but no, I prefer to, I, I prefer to be positive, and I think that's one of the reasons um, I was so overwhelmed with with all the comments after I got let go uh, from the radio station. Um, that there, obviously, I think I think it resonated with a lot of people. They picked up on it, either subconsciously or consciously, and I think that's reflected in in so many of the comments that that came in the last couple of weeks or so. I don't doubt it. I mean, you're a beloved figure within the industry. Um, and I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, you do. I mean, the artists, 
the artists understand that you really care. You, you not only take the time to do your research, but you can't feign interest. Exactly. Right? That's either there or it's not. Yeah. And yeah. And and to bring this right back to announcers and what I think they should shouldn't do. Um, I was another anecdote here. Um, I always believe that, that when you're at a live performance and you're introducing an artist, you owe it to the artist and to the audience to give them an introduction that is a respectful uh, and not necessarily rote like, oh, they won so many Grammy Awards or whatever, uh, and that sort of stuff. But something that ties in uh, and gives a little bit of the personality of the, of the artist that you're introducing and maybe something that even their fans didn't know. Uh, being respectful at the same time. And I think every artist that you introduce on stage, whether it's a local entertainer who doesn't even have a recording contract but plays in the bar or, or at the Legion or whatever, deserves that same kind of uh, respect and introduction. Um, and it's a bit show busy too at times. Um, but I saw one of the worst examples of this at, at a major event when a major artist was being introduced by somebody from the radio station and it turns out it was not even one of the on-air personalities. It was one of the part-time weekend people who help out with uh, appearances and stuff like that. And, and the introduction I heard was they were talking about what was going on at the radio station, which is fine. You know, you're, you're there to promote the radio station, too, to a point. Um, and they were telling about what was going on with the radio station and what they were doing and all this sort of stuff. And then this is what I heard. And by the way, here's so-and-so. And it was a major artist. And I felt so bad for the artist. I felt so bad for the radio station. I felt bad for myself that somebody would actually do something that flippant, uh, flippant, and I I considered it disrespectful to the artist, you know. And that just blew me away that somebody would actually do that. It's also disrespectful to the individual who who perpetrated that because you know the the reality is they've they've gotten themselves involved in going down a road uh, in terms of a professional career path of something they're clearly not passionate about. Yeah. And, and I think, I think, listen, if, if there's a, if there's a rot, uh, a malignancy at the root of the music business, I think that's it, whether it's radio, uh, the record industry, the live performance industry, you've got people making decisions on behalf of talent who are not emotionally connected to it. They don't love it. They don't believe in it. They don't have any interest in it. They just yeah. work in the industry. And I understand how you can get swept up in an industry. I'm not saying that there are times where um, I've lost my passion, but I also know how important it is to reconnect with it. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's a slippery slope down. And so when I see somebody who's apathetic, but they've got the job, mm -hmm. I not only get pissed off for how poorly they do that job, but I feel for them because I go, I want to grab them by the shoulders and go, man, you're not doing what you're meant to do. There's exactly. something else out there for you. This might not be it. Maybe this is what your dad did or your mom did, or maybe, maybe you ended up going down this life path for one reason or another, and it will serve you in the future, but this is not what you're meant to do. And you know that deep down, that's yeah. why you don't give a fuck, right? I like mean, that's where it is. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do to that person. I wanted to just go right up to them, uh, like backstage and shake them. But no, <laughs> hopefully they'll learn. Yeah, and and I think that if the intent is, hey, listen, it's not just about the fact that you're you're not doing a great job. It's it's the fact that there's something, there's some other calling out there for you. Then sometimes people feel the 
the intent and the love behind that. Yeah. Right. And, and then maybe they can be bold enough to make a career decision that might scare them a bit more, might be a bit more difficult to explain, but ultimately it's aligned with their true overall purpose. And you've certainly done that in, in your career. It's why you're so beloved, but I want to talk a little bit about radio and, and where you think it's going. I mean, I've been hearing for well over a decade that terrestrial radio is disappearing. It's on its way out. I hear that all the time. And yet every day I turn on the radio and, and people are still there. I'm such an old guy. I remember the song uh, Video Killed the Radio Star. And there was talking back then in those days in the 80s that, you know, the music channels were going to come along and just knock radio uh, right off its butt. Um, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, I think terrestri uh, terrestrial radio is going to be around. Um, it's just going to be different um, because you're always going to need radio to advise people. Uh, the first thing you want is information. Um, and then entertainment, um, for example. I mean, if something's going on in your community, like there's a fire downtown or something like that, you want to know about that. And that's where radio is going to uh, deliver um, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it wants to deliver. Um, but getting to uh, what you want to address, um, what I see now is uh, big companies, uh, including the one I used to work for, um, are... are, are moving to a situation where, and I understand the business, they want to save as much money as possible. And one of the biggest expenses at any uh, radio station is the talent. And so because of technology, it's now possible for a company, not necessarily the one I used to work for, but um, them and others, um, to hire somebody to do a show in one particular community and then have technology send a voice track recordings done around the same time to their entire chain of whatever that format is and to be played in, in communities um, anywhere right across Canada. And you're going to see that uh, um, happen, I think, quite a bit. Uh, morning shows are being replaced by one particular morning show, probably enough out of Toronto. Um, and I think that's going to be kind of the template for what's going to happen. So for those who think that they're doing a morning show right now and they're safe because they're never going to get rid of the morning show, uh, sorry, I hate to burst your bubble, but every single job is in jeopardy. Um, every single job is not safe, and there is no such thing as job security in this business. And I've known that for a long, long time, having been let go. I think this is like the third time now I've been let go. Um, but I think um, where the major uh, companies are, are going to do not deliver is local. They're going to try to address it and make it sound like it's local, but I think the average person will find out sooner or later, they'll know, they have a sixth sense about it, that, hey, this person isn't local, they, they're not in my community because they're not telling me the information that I already know. Like I said, if there's a fire downtown in your community, whatever your, wherever your community is, I mean, the first place you're going to hear about it is probably on the radio, but now on social media. Uh, to well, point. or Twitter. I mean, people no. have a broader... Oh, access, yeah. right. People have, have broader access to local information through various channels. I mean, I used to turn it on to listen to the weather when I was a kid. Now exactly. I can check the weather app. So I understand, I understand why individuals may be like everybody's getting their information for the most part from these other sources. So mm -hmm. let's automate as much as possible, cut our costs. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with it, Randy, but I, mm -hmm. I get I get where the logic could come from. So what I would ask you is what's 
What's the response to that logic? Um, the response will be, I think, is that small market radio stations that aren't owned by big companies uh, may be able to succeed. I mean, if there hadn't been COVID uh, draining everybody's finances, um, I think a lot of uh, smaller radio stations are going to survive by being more active in their community. I mean, um, that was one of the cool things about, about radio um, that I found. I, I was reluctant to do it because I'm a shy guy, basically. Um, but radio brought, uh, brought that out of me. Um, but going to events um, and, and going, and whether it's a news event, I mean, I had a situation one time where I came upon a, a police area that, that was cordoned off. And this, was, this was back in my hometown of Welland. This is the middle of the night. I was just getting home from a bar and there was a car pulled over. Police had blocked off the area. There were people standing around outside. I got out of my vehicle to find out what was going on. The police weren't saying anything at the scene, but I could see a bullet hole or two in the vehicle that was at the side of the road. So I asked a couple of people what was going on. They said, well, we heard gunshots and came out. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to the radio station uh, and write up something for uh, the morning news guys when they came in. And so I called the police to get information because that's what a good reporter would do. And so I got the desk sergeant and I asked him for any information. He said, well, I'm not at liberty to give out that information. I said, well, I was just there at the scene. People are wide awake. They probably have their radios on and they want to know what's going on. He said, hold on for a minute. And he put me in charge with uh, the staff sergeant who gave me all the details. He told me exactly what was going on and, and, and the suspect's name and all that sort of stuff. So um, that was kind of frustrating in a way. But the fact that uh, that information was there and available uh, and we got it out to people. So first thing in the morning when they woke up, they knew what was going on in that particular area. Um, so that's that's one of those things. Again, um, if that had been in, in today's day, somebody might just tweet that. Oh, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll treat pictures of that they've taken at the scene, that sort of stuff. But you're not going to get official confirmation, the official story of what's going on. And that can lead to all sorts of rumors. Um, and that's why I depend on on the media, because they're trained um, to be respectful. And, and I mean, I, I, I've had I've had a situation one time I was driving uh, back to Welland. And it came upon an accident uh, scene. Obviously, the police were already there. I just took a picture just to, you know, post and let everybody know. And boom, you start hearing, oh, well, you're infringing on people's privacy and stuff like that, like the people who were involved in the accident and that sort of thing. So that's kind of a tricky situation. When people become reporters, um, I'm a little leery of that because, A, they don't know about checking their sources like that, and they don't know about... Uh, the proper way to do a story without getting, uh, without letting rumor and innuendo and untrue, uh, untrue, um, I wouldn't say untrue facts, but that's the only thing I can think of right now, but get, getting untrue uh, elements of the story out there because that's how rumors and false stories and fake news happens. Right. I, I love what you said about how important it is for media to hold themselves to a higher standard uh, maintain some semblance of impartiality. Uh, I feel like we've really lost the nuance of that, no. especially in the last decade. Um, but, but you know, I think the election of Donald Trump in 2016 also broke a lot of people's brains. Um, and why you, why and I understand why. Yeah, but but <laughs> here's the thing. If I follow a particular reporter from a news organization, I personally don't want to know your personal thoughts mm -hmm. on 
Justin Trudeau, Donald Trump. Like, I, I don't want to know what you think personally. I want to understand the facts. I want you to present the facts yeah. because yeah. I, I think that there's something condescending about, and listen, it happens on the left and the right. CNN does it. Fox News mm-hmm. does it. There's something condescending about, here are the facts. Let us tell you how you should feel about them and how you should talk to your friends and family about them. That to me feels like a dereliction of duty on behalf of the media. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that because it seems to be a trend where it's also propagated something you alluded to, the the idea that it's more important to be first to the story than Mm -hmm. it is to be accurate. Yeah, exactly. I had had that situation once with a guy who was uh, doing news at one point. He had done news at another radio station and we ended up working together later on. And I mentioned that to him and I said, like, what's more important to you, getting on the air first or getting on the air right? He said, oh, getting on the air first. And I just totally disagreed with him. Um, But, yeah, I totally agree. But um, it's more than just them uh, as a dereliction of duty. You are now seeing partisan politics creep into the news in in a way that that I think is dangerous. Um, Because, yeah, both sides do it, obviously. Uh, Some do it more outwardly than others. But when you start to demean the other side, that's where I my my hackles start to get raised. And I go, this is getting into some dangerous territory that the media shouldn't be involved in. I always thought the media should just basically give you the information. You decide what to do with it. Now they're telling you what to do with it. Um, And that's how to feel about it. Exactly. And that's the scary part of it. And the thing is, I saw this coming uh, to get off on another tangent. Uh, you know, my interest in the Kennedy assassination. Um, and, and I've been researching that for so many years. And I got dispirited uh, um, and frustrated because what they call the research community, the exact same thing I saw going on 20 years ago. One side would criticize, demean the other and and have their facts arrayed and say, no, no, your facts are wrong. And, and I, there was a lot of infighting going on. And I see that now. Um, in, in in everyday media these days, which is which is frightening to me. Um, and it's frightening because I think, again, people should have the responsibility, okay, listen to what they're saying, fine, but make a judgment. Um, um, and I know passion is, is, is a big thing for you and, and for me when you're passionate about something. But, but when you're led down the garden path by people on TV, talking heads, telling you what to say and how to do and how to react to it, that's where I have a problem with it. And, and talking heads and even talk show hosts, um, I had another, another antidote to share. I, uh, when I was at Niagara College where, where I was uh, trained in broadcasting, um, there was a talk show host from Niagara Falls who, who demeaned and criticized the program. So I invited him to come down to the, the college and take a look at what we actually do because he obviously had no idea. And he was kind enough, he did. And at one point, he kind of pulled me in aside, aside and he said, you really believe everything I say on the radio? I said, he says, I say a lot of stuff on the radio that I personally disagree with because I need to provoke people to call in because that's what the show is all about. So he's deliberately going out there and saying things he personally disagrees mm. with in order to get an audience. And that um, opened up my eyes to, to, I mean, a lot of talk shows and stuff like that where you realize um, – especially nowadays, I mean, the politicalness of it um, is they're probably saying stuff even they don't believe, but they do it because they need the ratings and they need they need the people to to 
respond to what they're doing. If they if nobody responds, they need the reaction. They need the clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's directly monetizable. It's it's contributing to the death spin, uh, the yeah. slow slow spiral death spin of the traditional media. I agree. I think uh, I think it's also propagated this propensity, which seems to be intrinsic to human beings. Where <clears throat> And I'm guilty of it. So this isn't a judgment. This is an observation. <laughs> We'd rather be right. And sometimes we allow that to supersede our desire to pursue the truth. Mm. And that that's dangerous, right? Yep. I mean, that that's how you end up being ideologically possessed. That's how you end up abandoning your critical thought process, which is so imperative uh, to retain your thoughts based on your individual experiences of your understanding of the world, right? You should be open and curious, exactly. but the minute you embrace ideological possession, you've just, you've resigned your ability to think through problems and it's, and you can see it, you know, it's like, I got to be on team, right? And mm -hmm. so I got to think these things, or I got to be on team left. I have to think these things. And it's like, but what about the, 80 to 90% of us who are in the middle, you know, who might slide right on some economic policies, but believe in strong social safety nets and know that there needs to be a nuance struck within those two things. And that there needs to be representatives from, from the right saying things like, we only have the budget to spend this. And there needs to be representatives from the left saying, but well, we have to take care of these dispossessed people. And if we don't, society is going to topple. We need ongoing interface between those two sides and the more partisan and personal and political it becomes the less we can have that honest open dialogue and that's what's heartbreaking about it yeah and um i'm scared that maybe that 80 percent that's in the middle i think the number is actually quite smaller than that now um, i think more and more people are picking sides uh, for whatever reason like they want to belong because I want to be with this particular group. I want to be over here and do this with, with these guys and that sort of stuff. Um, so I think that that middle area is, is becoming a, a lot smaller. People are actually picking sides for whatever reason. Um, some are doing it for, for good reasons. Some are doing it for bad reasons. Um, and that's, that's a frightening thing to me. Well, a lot of people, it, it, it's easier, frankly. You know, I mean, yeah. we all, again, have a propensity to do what's easiest sometimes. And, and I fall into that, too. And it's just yeah. easier to pick a side than you know, through every individual issue um, based on educating yourself. You can just go, well, what is my side belief? I'm just checking on what's trending on t Twitter. Oh, OK, that's what we believe. That's our that's our feeling on this issue. And then you can toe the line of your imaginary team as opposed to gathering the facts, because frankly, who has time for that? I understand yeah. the temptation. If I didn't understand yeah. the temptation, I couldn't critique it competently. Yeah, I'd rather be, yeah, the, 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 the phrase I like to use is, yeah, they'd rather be yeah, on a team uh, rather than standing up by themselves. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage to be an individual yes. in a, a partisan devised, or, or uh, a partisan, a world that accentuates partisan division. It takes a lot of courage to retain some independent thought in through that, and especially to be able to express it on social media. So, I mean, I've, I've got my opinions, but I generally, I generally, I mean, I have my opinions, but I'm not married to them. I'm mm -hmm. not married to them because they don't define me. I'm willing to 
entertain other narratives, especially if they conflict with my opinion, because I'm interested in knowing whether or not I'm in pursuit of the truth. Yeah, you but you touched and on something. Yeah, you touched on something it's earlier. It's not to you, say that I hold myself to a different ethical standard. No, when when you mentioned uh, earlier about um, educating yourself and that sort of stuff, that's very important. I'm finding people are just too lazy to do that. Um, you know, they're they're going to go with the the loudest bang, the loudest splash, whatever attracts their attention. Oh, that sounds good. I think I'll go join that team, sort of thing, rather than do the research and find out what exactly is behind all that sort of stuff. I think most people are lazy that way. They really don't have the time to do it. Who has the time to do it nowadays? You know, people don't. Um, but you mentioned, uh, again, um, one of my other passions is I love to learn. I love to read. I mean, every morning, weekday mornings when I was supposed to go to work, um, I'd get up at 5.30 in the morning, go to Tim Hortons, take a book to read. And I would sit there and have a donut and a coffee at 5.30 in the morning, and that was my time. Um, when nobody could call me and nobody could bother me, you might get the odd person going in line saying, hi, Randy, how you doing? Uh, and every once in a while, somebody would uh, rudely come over and sit down and start talking when they see my, my face is buried in a book. But um, learning is something that I always uh, I always thought was important to do. And I'm always constantly learning. I'm, I hope I never stop. Um, because, I mean, I want to find out what makes people tick. I want to find out why things happen. I want to find out. Um, something that I didn't know before, just so I can go, oh, that's interesting. I did not know that, you know, um, and maybe there's some way I could use that. And how, whatever much, I do. how much research have you, how much research have you conducted on that front on the Kennedy assassination? I mean, I know you've, you've uh, visited the site plaza, you've read the Warren commission report. Um, I've done more than read the Warren commission report. Uh, they came out with 26 volumes of evidence, like a set of encyclopedias. It took me three years to read them. I actually drove down to Williamsport, Pennsylvania to get a set. It cost me $1,000. <laughs> but um, I have over 500 books in my collection. I've got some documents and stuff like that. Um, when the recent um, wave of documents was released about three, four years ago, I downloaded all 35,000 documents. And that sounds like a lot, but it's a lot more than that because one document could be one page. Another document I read was over a thousand pages long and had absolutely nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination. A thousand pages. It was FBI reports uh, years after Kennedy had been killed on right wing groups in parts of the United States and a casual mention of Bobby Kennedy's assassination years later. So there's all that to go through. Uh, but to meet some of these people and, and and this is one of those things, it's, it's an accident. Um, and my career has been an accident, too, um, because I just became fascinated by it at a young age, and I got more into it. And the more I got into it, the more interesting I found I found it. And eventually, it got to the point where I thought, well, the best way to find out about it is to reach out to some of these people who were still alive back then, talk to them about it. And the more I would post stuff about it uh, and do more research on it, other people noticed it. And that's how I got invited down to Dallas. Uh, to MC a conference on it, I mean, for three years in a row. I mean, that's insane. Um, to uh, following your passion. Yeah, exactly. And 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 you never know where it's going to where it's going to take you. And that's that's the cool part about it is. Um, I never dreamed that I would meet Lee Harvey Oswald's widow, I and mean, Oswald, the guy who allegedly shot John F. Kennedy. I mean, I'd seen her on television. I've read reports about her and books about her. I've seen her on uh, TV talk shows and things like that. 
But at one point, I was at a conference in Sudbury, and it was the first time she went to one of these conferences, and she was brought up by a mutual friend. And security, and this was in the middle of summer at Laurentian University, and security there was crazy. They were out in the courtyard. Security would not even allow you to go into any of the rooms that were, that were facing the courtyard. But my friend saw me walking down the hallway, and he waved me over. And so I came over and I got to sit and talk to her for two hours, never dreaming I'd ever meet her. And we had a wonderful conversation about her life in the States, um, why, uh, you know, when she had relatives finally visit from Russia when that was allowed, um, what a, a mind-blowing event that was. I mean, her aunt came to visit her. And the first thing they did when they picked her up from the airport, well, we're going to pick up some Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, for dinner on the way home. And the aunt just started to cry. She could not believe that you could get hot chicken, uh, you know, just just by driving through it through through a takeout window kind of thing. I mean, it was a, it was an interesting um, life story and, and anecdote about that. Yeah, and a culture shock for her, um, but a, a, an interesting um, anecdote about that culture divide between the two uh, civilizations. I guess you might call it. And then later on. Um, uh, during that conference, the Oliver Stone movie was being shown, and I'd go up because of my nasty habit of smoking, and she she was a notorious chain smoker. And we'd meet out in the lobby or go outside and talk some more, to the point where a few months later, I was down in Dallas for the 30th anniversary, and she was there. Norman Mailer was there to interview her. And at one point, she sees me, and, she's, and she recognized me and remembered me. And that just totally moved me. So again, it's 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 like your passion, you know. It's like I never dreamed that that would happen. I never dreamed I'd be speaking to a room full of researchers and authors and FBI agents. Um, and at one point, being on the on the famous grassy knoll on the 30th anniversary, and I see somebody standing there that I'd recognized from a TV show the month before, and it's a KGB agent from Russia, and I'm talking to him through his interpreter at the scene of the murder of the president of the United States. That's insane. The alleged scene of the murder with the grassy knoll. <laughs> but yeah, I do wow. want to talk to you. Well, well, After all of your exhaustive research, what conclusions did you arrive at? Was Lee Harvey Oswald the lone shooter? I ruled out suicide. <laughs> That's about the only thing I can say. Definitely. Um, I've gone back and forth with it. When I first got into it, I believed Oswald was a lone assassin. But I think there's enough doubts now that... Um, there might have been a second shooter, maybe not even necessarily on the grassy knoll. I don't know for sure. The fact that the medical evidence was so badly bungled back in those days. Um, and, and so it's hard to draw a conclusion based upon that when it should have been a cut and dried, simple murder case. And it wasn't. Um, but I think that there's a possibility that uh, there might have been another gunman. I think it's possible. Also might have not even fired any shots that day. I think he might have been set up. Um, and I think it's entirely possible that somebody was using him that day. Um, one of the oddest things about the whole case to me is that um, none of the evidence lines up with any one particular theory. You can uh, right. look at the famous film of the shooting, and when you see Kennedy's head go backwards. Like the Zapruder film you're, you're referring to, correct? Exactly. I mean, I'm sitting at the conference uh, across from the table one year, and I look at this guy's name tag, and I went, wait a minute, your father. He goes, yep. His father developed the film that day. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. But when you see that, when you see that reaction, your immediate uh, and the immediate impression you get is, oh, he must have been shot from the front. But when you study the mechanics of ballistics and nerve impulses and, and 
the whole thing. Um, you can you can argue and use bits of evidence to support either conclusion that yeah the shot did come from the front or it did come from behind. But until you actually study um, the actual body for the best medical evidence, and and like I said, that was so badly tainted that there's no way we're ever going to know. Mm. But it's well, but I'll tell you something. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked about uh, about conclusions because uh, while some people might think that's an important thing for me. I think it's, uh, it's, it's like a trip. I mean, some, sometimes the journey itself is much more interesting than the destination. And, right. and to be on this trip, to meet Oliver Stone and to meet this Russian KGB agent on the grassy knoll, and to meet Oswald's wife, I mean, that's, that's incredible. And, and to be able to have done that is just, I'm, I'm blown away by it myself. <laughs> so you're moving into a new phase professionally in your life. Um, have you ever thought about a podcast oh, have around I. Uh, uh, all of your knowledge in this particular realm, or obviously you would you would have an amazing podcast if you were to talk about uh, country music artists, country music in general. You could do some interviews. You could you could tell anecdotes. I mean, you, you're built for this. So yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not putting any pressure on you or pontificating. <laughs> but do you see yourself going in that direction? Yeah, I do. Um, and I'm the, the only thing I'm worried about right now or, or taking it under consideration is, can I make it something that is um, revenue? How can I say this? Um, that will support myself uh, from a revenue standpoint. That's the only thing. But yeah, that is something I'm definitely, and I've had a lot of people in the last couple of weeks or so talk to me about that and uh, offer me all sorts of different services and things like that. But um, I think I'd want to find something a little bit more stable first, get that job with the understanding from whoever I end up working for or working with that. Yeah, this podcast thing is something I definitely want to do. Um, I'd be interested to see how, how it would go. Um, and um, I'm thinking of a whole bunch of different directions to take it. Well, you could take it in any direction. It's going to be equally compelling, right? Just exactly. depending on, on the listeners who, who find it and, and gravitate to it. Um, Generally, podcasts don't make a lot of money, especially in the beginning. Mm -hmm. There's a building phase, right? So you do need to make sure you can pay your bills while you're investing in your passion. Same as an artist, right? Yep. Now you're an exactly. artist and mm -hmm. you're just distributing your content across all the platforms. They distribute theirs. Um, so it's going to take a little time to build up to where you can sell off sponsorships or oh, brand yeah. alignments for the podcast. But Man, I just think you'd be magical in that space, and I think it would grow really. I think it would grow rapidly. You know, you could you could even have separate ones where you could have one that sort of deals with the history for JFK assassination nuts because there's thousands of them out there, and and or you could weave that into all of your your uh, incredible knowledge as it pertains to the roots of country music history, all of your anecdotes, the people you've talked to, the people you've interviewed. I mean, how many people are still working in radio today who interviewed Glenn Campbell, Charlie Pride, who's now dearly departed, Johnny Cash. I mean, you're not getting those new interviews anymore because those, those individuals have departed either recently or in the case of Cash almost 20 years ago. Like how many people have your breadth of, real world experience and could speak to it competently. And, um, and I think and, and, it would be a shame if you didn't launch a podcast. I think yeah. you'd be so great at it. I'd well, subscribe. Thanks. I, 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 I'd like to invite you to be a guest on it too. 
Um, but to give you an example, um, and this is where I think um, a lot of people in the business today don't see the connections. Um, one of the last things I did, and, and I was fortunate that the company allowed me to go up basically and, and do what my last shows the way I wanted to. That normally doesn't happen in this business. When you get told, uh, sorry, we no longer need your services, it's like they walk you out the door and you might have to come back at a later time to get your stuff. Uh, but no, they they allowed me to do that. And one of the cool things I did, and I, I got some interesting reactions to it, and I'm glad you mentioned Glenn Campbell. I interviewed him probably in the late 80s, early 90s, and we talked about how he was such a big influence on Steve Warner. And I told Glenn that I remembered watching his TV show, The Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, when I was a kid. And he said, well, it's funny you mentioned that because Steve Warner was was just like you. He, he watched that show religiously and um, was very, very much influenced by that and by Glenn Campbell. And then down the road, uh, along comes an artist from Oklahoma named Brian White, who uh, had a fairly successful career in the early part of the 90s. He was influenced by Steve Warner. And at one point, Brian actually came down to Tilsonburg, where I was working at the time, and I asked him, how, how, have you ever thought about how you would feel uh, if you ever found out that some big star of the future was influenced by you? And here's the thing, it did happen because there was an artist who used to have a poster of Brian White in her bedroom. That artist is Carrie Underwood. So to, 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 nobody else has been able to draw that connection, how Glenn Campbell influenced Steve Warner, Steve Warner influenced Brian White, and Brian White a big influence on Carrie Underwood. So I know a lot of people are stuck in today's music and today's country, that sort of stuff. But man, the roots, especially in country music, which has such a rich history, I mean, it just all comes down to, to how they're all interconnected and how no one particular artist, I think, stands alone by themselves. They've been influenced by so many different people and they're going to influence other people down the road, the next major superstar, perhaps. Yeah, it's it's one of the beautiful things about this business is that even though you can pursue it for selfish reasons, mm -hmm. uh, if you're following your passion, you're gonna inspire selflessness in others. You know, They're gonna be inspired by what you, uh, create, propagate, um, endorse, and uh, and it's it's one of the reasons why. And even though it, it you know, it's not always intentional. Some artists um, get oh, into yeah. business with no in intention of inspiring others. They're they've got a message they want to um, bring to the world, and they've got a passion they want to pursue. But by virtue of the fact that they've done it so effectively, it just happens. And um, it's, it's not dissimilar in radio, my friend. You're opening a new chapter professionally where you could certainly inspire other people to take up the charge. And there's gonna, there's gonna be other people leaving radio in mm -hmm. the next few years who may be very much inspired by the example you set in your post-radio world. Unless you end up back in that world, by the way, and that could happen, but even if it doesn't, you know, I love the idea of you forging out a podcast talking about the things you're passionate about you're so well spoken you're so well informed and the fact that you just drew that that line from glenn campbell to steve warner to brian white to carrie underwood it reminds me of following the magic bullet theory <laughs> it's like you've got the same thought processes rolling to make that all work in your favor so it's pretty cool yeah, one of the biggest things I've learned is no one uh, person or no one event stands alone. They're all connected in one way or another. Um, and that's one of the most surprising things I think I've learned in my life. Um, you're not there alone. Um, nobody is. I mean, and, and again, events, um, you, you can look at study Pearl Harbor. You realize that there were events that led up to it and events that led after it because of it. 
9-11, same thing. Um, that's one major event, but there were events that led up to it and there were events that led uh, from it. Um, so yeah, everything's all connected and we're all connected. Um, and, and I'm hoping that uh, the world recognizes that, that we're not all alone, you know, we're not all separate. We're all in this together, this whole COVID thing. I mean, we're all in this together and it's going to take us all together to get over it. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the sentiment of that, Randy. Um, I think that the, the discrepancy for me is that we've got in some cases, politicians who haven't missed a paycheck uh, who keep reminding yeah. us of the sacrifices that we have to uh, maintain uh, while they continue to basically live life like they did before COVID. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I would like to see, listen, I would just like to see politicians throw in a bit more. I'd like to see mm-hmm. them go, hey, oh, listen, yeah. until we have, through our resourceful leadership, until we have brought your businesses back, we are going to live on serve. We are not going to take a paycheck anymore. We are actually in this with you. We don't just say that. It's not just a bumper sticker. It's not just a catchphrase. We're doing this yeah. with you. That yeah. to me would be real, real leadership, but that's my expectation setting me up for hurt and failure again. Um, <laughs> I'll, but, I'll, leave you, I'll leave you one little quick saying I, I like to use. I like to think of this as we're in a tug of war with this virus, and sometimes there are people on our side that are letting go of the rope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think that it's fair to say that uh, from an overarching perspective, it should yeah. be humanity against the virus. Yeah. Um, and just as some people are letting go of the, the rope in the in the tug of war, proverbially speaking, there are other people who seem to be actually cheering for the virus, which I don't yeah. understand. Yeah, I mean, I don't you should one hundred percent follow the science. I'm not anti-science, mm-hmm. but if that science uh, changes and evolves, which it will, and we should have some forgiveness for that because we're also learning new things about this virus every day. Then, um, then we should be able to go along with that. And, and so I see sort of the, the camps of people who want to ignore it or pretend it's a hoax or it's, it's a hoax propagated by the Chinese government. You know, you got those people out there and then you got people on the other side who, you know, want to wear a mask and sit in their basement and face the wall for the next two years. I'm also not on board with those folks. You know, it's right. like, how are we going to learn to live lives that make the concessions and sacrifices that need to be made in order to protect people, but that we don't create bigger and more damaging problems with unintended consequences? And that's a holistic conversation. And that's a hard conversation to have with this issue so partisan and so politicized oh, yeah. and, and so filtered through cruelty and meanness. And, and mm-hmm. some people are just looking for an excuse to be an asshole. And this virus has given them the license to do it. And on both sides. Yeah. And, right? and, yeah, and, and, on, and on, on that same point, too, uh, it takes a crisis like this that will bring out the worst in people, in some people, and it will bring out the best in others, too. Yeah. So that's, yeah, you got to you know, pay more attention to, to the best. And, you know, those that are, are, are uh, you know, it's bringing out the worst of them, just don't give them a platform. Well, that's tough, too, right? Because yeah, it is. Yeah. As yeah, much is. as we don't want those people to have a platform, the, the reality is as soon as, so let's say, 
let's say you got some conspiracy theorist nut and you deplatform that individual. In some ways, you've drawn more attention to them. You yeah, know, more, like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of, and I'm not, I, I, you know, let's take calls for violence against specific uh, groups and let's set that aside. I'm kind of a big fan of let ideas float mm -hmm. and, and debunk them with better ideas rather than trying to suppress ideas or tell people that they can't speak because they said the wrong thing, because, you know, that, that can have nefarious long-term consequences too. Yeah, but there, has to come a, but there has to come a point where if you see somebody who's running hell-bent for a cliff, right. you have to stop them. <laughs> or right. you, have that, you, have that, you have that choice to either stop them or let them run off the cliff. But how and do we go about that? Is taking down their Facebook page a way to stop them? Or should we yeah. reach out to them, engage them in a good discussion that may yeah. debunk all their ideas and, and perhaps even change their perspective, right? Exactly, like, exactly. Yeah, that's that's that, the hard I'm part. more of a fan of that camp, which is yeah. why, you know, and and I'm not I'm not blowing my own horn here. I'm just saying, like, I don't really believe in. I don't like what that person said. Let's deplatform them. It's like, well, if you've ever followed my Facebook page or any of my <laughs> pages uh, on social media, there are people who don't agree with things I say, and sometimes I will actually see their perspective through mm -hmm. their evaluation of what's been said because I'll look at it. And I'll go, oh, geez, I didn't. I didn't think about it from that perspective or from that context. And now it's hard for me to own that publicly because that would mean admitting I'm wrong, but I have to do that if I want to re retain my integrity or I'll reach out to that person in a private message. But I don't want, I don't want to have the ability to take someone's page down because I personally didn't jive with what they said. Um, I have a feeling that could become pretty tyrannical quickly. Yeah, and 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 be totally misused. Yeah, for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I see that. Sure. I see that. I see that part of it too. Well, uh, my friend, I thoroughly enjoyed this. This has been great. Well, you are, are you are uh, such an inspirational guy, and you brought so much light to the Canadian country music community by expressing so much passion and interest, and. Um, I uh, I really look forward to what's next for you in your professional chapter and moving forward. And um, if there's anything I can do to support you in that, um, I'm not just saying that because we're on the air. You call me, might, you let me know. I might disappoint you because if I win the lottery, I'm moving to an island in the South Pacific and you're never going to hear from me again. Uh, I was hoping I might get an invitation. Uh, well, uh, population of this place <laughs> is like 1,500. There's no airport, just the runway. I have it all picked out. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, uh, we won't spill the beans on this podcast and alert people to your potential whereabouts should you win the lottery. But uh, <laughs> best to you either way, my friend. And, um, and thanks. Thank you. you. Thank you for all you do because you are again one of those people that I find that. I mean, just just to reflect this back to you, but it's so passionate about what you do, and I love to see that from from people. Um, and, and you're one of the reasons um, I, I respect the industry because you help elevate not only the artists you represent you help elevate this whole industry as well and and for that i thank you very much because you've helped elevate me in my life and my professional career so i can't thank you enough for that thank you uh you are so damn gracious i try to out gracious you there's just no way to do it <laughs> i appreciate you brother thanks again
And um, we'll check in with you in the new year. All right. All the best.